now, everyone's favorite autodidactic iconoclast, Drew Marshall. Could you find an older version, please? That's why I chose it, because That's it's so like good. It's like an original recording from when they first sort of got into it. Oh, that is so good. Folks, it's our St. Patrick's Day special here on the Drew Marshall Show. I was going to say all Irish all the time, but the first hour was Italian. Starts with an I. And they're in Europe. So we're okay. <laughs> Thanks, says the silver lining boy. Uh, it's time for a little segment that we're doing here, uh, sponsored by faithbooks.ca. Really love the stuff HarperCollins is doing. Just fantastic, fantastic uh, organization. Harper One and everyone else over there. Anyway, uh, we are just about to speak with a gentleman named John Dominic Crossan. He's written a book here called How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation. And he's Irish. And he's from... Tipperary. Ladies and gentlemen, Dominic on the phone with us. Dominic Crossan. Sir, how are you today? I'm very good, Drew. Thank you very much for having me. You haven't lost much of the lilt. No, I suppose... I came here in 51, but it probably stuck with me. I was, by then I was, what, 17, so it was probably too late to change. It is too late to change. That's right. Um, you're, are you 81? Is that true? Yeah. That is unbelievable. I, I, I attribute it to three things, not necessarily in this order. God, genes, that's G-E-N-E-S, and the gym. <laughs> and the gym. Sorry, and did you say, gym. hold on, did you say the gym, G-Y-M, or the gin, G-I-N? <laughs> no, I wouldn't recommend that. Okay. Who I am. All right, all right, just checking. You know, I didn't know this when we, uh, I, I saw the title of the book and I said, oh, i got to get this guy on. And, and I'd heard of you, of course, before everybody, well, a lot of people know you, the people that uh, have any sort of uh, theological studies under their belt. And uh, But I didn't know you were such a polarizing, controversial uh, figure. Was it CNN or Time? Who did that big article on you? Oh, CNN did one. Um, it was really a very friendly article, but they, they called me a sort of a, a blasphemer. I think they were speaking in the, you know, in the persona of the fairly right-wing fundamentalist, I think, right. who would solve things not by arguing ideas, but by uh, attacking personalities. Well, that's what we're. That's what the the the, the church is is best at. That's a spiritual gift of the church: attacking personalities. Really? That's a spiritual exactly. gift. <laughs> that is, of course, back to the Book of Revelation. If you really are really worried by somebody, go after their character. Don't bother about their ideas. <laughs> Just before we get into this book, tell me about your your days in Tipperary. I mean, come on, I've never met anyone actually from Tipperary. This is an honor. I know. It's a little bit sad. My parents were in the old Hibernian Bank. My father was in the old Hibernian Bank. We were actually living in Portumna, which is in Galway. But Portumna in those days, I hope I don't disparage it too much, didn't have any kind of a decent li- lying-in hospital or whatever you want to call it. So my mother went across the Shannon to Nina, County Tipperary. So the only reason I was born in Tipperary was to be with my mother, as it were. I was there probably for about a week, and then we went home to Portumna. <laughs> But, you know, I couldn't write a memoir called this a long way from Galway. So <laughs> well said. You've said that before, I think. Um, what What did you used to believe, Dominic, that you no longer believe? 
What and I'm talking theologically. What did you yeah. used to believe theologically that you now no longer believe? Maybe I took far too much that was intend, intended metaphorically in the Bible. I took literally. But to be honest with you, there was never a huge disjunction in my own mind because I had five years of Greek and five years of Latin before I ever read anything in the Bible. I mean, growing up in Catholic Ireland, you, you didn't have a Bible in the house. You had a rosary, but you didn't have a Bible. So by the time I got round to reading the Bible, which was pretty well into my uh, theological education, I had already read Homer and Virgil and, you know, all those guys. And so I was quite able to put all of that into a, how do I put it, into the proper matrix. Like, I wasn't dumb enough to tell my my um, virtual directors in the monastery that, you know, the Latin the Latin you're using in church here isn't very good Latin. You know, I, I read better Latin than in Virgil. <laughs> from Virgil and Cicero by the time I was 15. I was smart enough not to say that, but it gave me a, a huge background. So when I heard a lot of these stories, I'm not going to say I, I took them metaphorically. I think I took them seriously, but the same way as I took all the other Irish stories we'd heard about how awful the British were or whatever. You, you, you knew there was some truth in there somewhere, but you weren't really unwise enough to take it all literally so I never had a huge discord in my own mind. I kind of moves rather smoothly from, okay, this is the way the world goes in the Greco-Roman world. This is where the Bible fits in there. Okay, I hear the story. This is what I get from the story. Do I take all the details literally? No. Do I think they were intended literally? No. I do think they were intended seriously, however. Hmm. So in one sense, I think it was my early classical education in a boarding school in Donegal that gave me the grounding not to do very silly things when I read the Bible. Well, uh, uh, North Americans in particular, I would say, are, are champions at doing silly things when they read the Bible. Isn't there something a little more grounded about being over in your neck of the woods? Well, if, if you had, if you begin your life with a classical education, and I really mean a serious one, we did five years of Greek and five years of Latin from the time I was 11 to 16. Wow. That was every day. And you read stuff in the original languages. And so you got used to this type of language. You got used to a world in which human beings could be divine, and you got, you got the point of it without taking it literally. That's, that's the way they want to say somebody has done something of a huge importance for the human race. You understood that sort of stuff before you got into reading that Jesus was divine, Jesus was Son of God. So there's less of a discord. I mean, I think most people would be, should never be allowed to read, say, the New Testament before they read maybe um, the, the Virgil's Aeneid. They just wouldn't be allowed to do it. Right. They'd be get it wrong. On the phone with John Dominic Crossan, who goes by Dominic. Is that right? Everyone calls you Dominic? Yeah, that's my middle name, actually. John, what's on my password is John Crossan, but my, my name, I was 19 years a monk, as you may know, and my religious name was Dominic, so when I left after 19 years, I decided I really like my name, Dominic, so I stuck it in the middle, but it has no legal standing. Why, it, why did you leave the priesthood? Did you get in trouble? Were you doing bad stuff? I, yeah, oh yeah. I basically in '68 had a major clash with the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, and make a long story short, by the time the clash was over, he was still the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, and I was an ex-priest. <laughs> so yeah, um, I basically applied for laicization, went by the book, and got permission. So between '68 and '69, I left the Roman Catholic priesthood and the monastery, mostly because I was in. You know, they'd give me a marvelous education. I was. Um, after my doctorate, I spent two years in Rome and two years in Jerusalem, and they've called me bleak. I mean, it was a marvelous education. 
I was trained to think, to think critically. But then when I started to do it, it was like I wanted to be in the research and publication department, and they wanted me in the in the public relations department. Right. This is what we think. Now you go out and tell, defend it. And I said, well, I don't think that, so I can't defend it. What, um, I mean, what do you miss? You must miss something about being a priest. Um, I don't, because to be honest with you, I went straight from, well, I, I set out to be a priest, and then they, they, they decided, my superiors decided you should be a professor. So there was these two parts of my life, the priestly and the professorial, and the real challenge I had was to separate them. I wanted to stay a professor. I love teaching. I love lecturing. I love research. And basically, I was able to move into DePaul University. And when I took early retirement from DePaul, I did that because I was being invited to speak in churches, and I, I couldn't do all of it. I've been able to be lecturing and teaching all my life, and that's what I love. So if that's part of being a priest teaching, that's the part I wanted to keep and have been able to keep. Dominic, what would you say would be the the darkest time of your life? Darkest time of my life? Oh, I'm going to disappoint you terribly. I really haven't had a very dark time in my life. From There was only three months from the time that I said I'm leaving the priesthood and basically didn't know what was going to happen. And I became a professor at DePaul University, and I don't even want to dignify that by calling it a dark time. <laughs> right. You know, it was a transition time. It was a major transition in my life. But maybe the speed with which it solved itself left me not feeling, you know, <laughs> as if there was a dark night or something. Okay. Had it gone on for a few years, I suppose it, would have, it could have been much but, worse. But what about 83? I mean, that was a tough year for you, was it not? Well, yes. Um, my late wife, Margaret, Margaret Agenet, was a professor of art and chair of the art department at Loyola University in Chicago. And in May the 1st, she had a heart attack. And I don't know what the doctors were thinking, but I thought she was recovering. I thought that's what was happening. And then there was a second heart attack a month later. She was back in the hospital. And again, I hadn't been warned that the doctors knew something. I I thought it was still in the process of um, recovery. And she died suddenly. So within a month from the beginning to the end, I had lost my wife. That's, I mean, I think to that, and I just think that's horrible. I think it's its a shock. It must have been a shocker for you, seriously. It, it was a shock. Actually, we, um, you know, sometimes when that happens, it's the details of it, the, the irrelevant details in a way, because we had a home, we had a home on the Balearic Islands of Spain. We went there every summer. We were both professors, so we were free all summer. So everything was getting ready to do that. Now, I mean, that's that pales into insignificance in the face of death. But you know how it is when somebody dies. You say silly things like, "We were all set to do X." Yeah. So yes, it <clears throat> left. The good side of it was it left me on say June the first with three months and nothing to do but to grieve and get my life adjusted as distinct from having to go, as some people do, right after the funeral, back to work and really never get to mourn, never get to grieve, never get to readjust. They have to go back to work. I had the grace of three months with nothing to do because nothing was planned. I wasn't even supposed to be in the country. So it, was a, it was a hard, but it was also a marvelously cathartic, therapeutic three months. 
Well, we're chatting with John Dominic Crossan. He's the author of, well, his latest book, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine... You know what? You could have just stopped there. How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian. <laughs> Yes. But, but the the main thrust of this book is struggling with uh, divine violence from Genesis through Revelation. If I'd stopped there, the danger would be that you think, oh, well, we all know, you know, bad cop God in the Old Testament becomes good cop God in the New Testament. And that's not what I'm talking about. I was, what I was really after was the most violent book in the entire Christian Bible. It's the last book, the book of Revelation. But isn't it interesting? Okay, so listen. Dominic, the, uh, Revelation, I I never spent much time with. I didn't care about it. I didn't want to know about it. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was some guy in mushrooms on some weird island writing down some esoteric baloney. Um, I thought it was not for me to figure out. See, this is the way I think about things. Sure, it might be the most violent book in the Bible, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, when it comes to creation... I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't, you know. And when it comes to Revelation, I don't know. I'm not going to be, you know. It's, there's so much guesswork that's involved in both ends of those of 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 the of the ultimate story. Well, the the thing that's of interest, if nobody was in the least bit interested in this book, I would be very, very, very easy to ignore it completely as some kind of an aberration. But in the last, the end of the last century either C.S. Lewis's Narnia series or the Left Behind series, both decided that not only was there some going to, was God going to do some kind of apocalyptic destruction of the world and of evil, but human beings, children in the case of Narnia and adults in the case of the Left Behind, were being called to participate in it. So if you have a God whose final solution to the problem of evil is basically to kill the evildoers, which is always other people, of course, <laughs> and you have very popular writings out there suggesting that when the time comes we have a duty to participate that scares me as a theology and even though theology seems to be a very esoteric thing as we're finding out at the moment in certain parts of the world it's about theology dummy (laughs) theology can make people do awful things well yeah I mean um, you know we could make someone like Creflo Dollar get rich yeah so that's what I was really after. If, if nobody heeded this book, if it was tucked away in the corner there, some kind of a strange esoteric book, but it really isn't. What, what the book of Revelation is out to do is to horrify you, well, in the first century, horrify you so much with the Roman Empire that you could never even think of acculturating to the Roman Empire. That's why the, the first two chapters are attacking all those other churches, because they're deep in acculturation to the Roman Empire which is, of course, what the Church is going to do by the, by the 4th century under Constantine. We'd be beautifully acculturated to Rome and be working on how to defend the Holy Roman Empire. One, you know, look, I think this whole thing boils down to a conversation, you know, us lay Christians have. I love that term. <clears throat> and it kind of goes like this. There's a verse that says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and yet... The God we read about in the Old Testament seems to be um, a lot different than the God in the New Testament. It's kind of like when people grow up and become grandparents. Um, Grandparents, you know, tend to all of a sudden be really nice and cuddly and warm and kumbaya and forgiving and gracious and, you know, because they're close to death, so they need to suck up, right? I know it. We live in Florida, so we know about You know about grandparents then. Yeah, (laughs) heck yeah. And meanwhile, you know, the... the, um, 
the, the children of these grandparents, not the grandchildren, but the children of these grandparents are looking at their their own parents and saying, where did you guys come from? When I was growing up, you guys were tyrants. <laughs> you were living with us. Now, now you're just visiting with yes. us. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, so there seems to be... Um, I don't know a bit of a weirdness about that whole thing, and especially when you think of, when you put it in the context of the verse that well, this God is supposed to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, He doesn't seem to be the same. And you know the trouble with with the danger is that it's kind of libelous to say, as I said, that the the God of the Old Testament is a bad cop, and then he really kind of grows up, gets mature, gets nice, is all about mercy and forgiveness. And that'll really work if you don't make the mistake of actually reading the Bible all the way to the last verse. Actually, probably I would say the most beautiful picture of God in the whole Bible is in chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter 1 of Genesis, and one of the worst is in, you know, chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. So I don't see any progression in the Bible that God sort of, as it were, matures, or that our image of God matures. It seems to me, if anything, is getting kind of worse. Okay, I remember uh, back in the day when I used to be a pastor, but don't tell anybody. Um, I was teaching a course uh, that was in you know that was a material by jo- uh, Neil Anderson. Neil Anderson, okay. you know, he's the big demon guy. Okay. And uh, and and in one of the uh, one of his uh, video instruction thingies, he said. Oh, I don't want to. You know, something about God. We're, people were worried about you know getting God angry or something like that. And and he yeah. said, "Well, no, hold on a second. God is always angry. God is always angry. That's a state of God. He's always angry." <laughs> um, I found that a little disturbing, and I remember looking into things a little bit and thought, "Well, this can't be. Is this? I mean, this is this doesn't correlate with the with the uh, the hippie Jesus movement that I've been hanging out with." Yeah. So, do you think God? Well, first of all, let's just go to uh, the basics here for a second, Dominic, because I don't even know if... I'm not even sure there is a God anymore. What about you? Well, I am, but I'm probably not... I probably don't mean by it what a lot of theists do or what atheists deny. But basically, I would approach it just to avoid that issue by saying (laughs) I'm very interested in the character that people imagine when they talk about God. If people imagine a violent God even a angry God, whoever, every now and then loses it, as it were. Yeah. I think that's going to feed back into their character, into their, the way they see the world, into the way they handle their family and everything else. So even, even if we were to say, we're just imagining God, I want to know what your imagination is. I want to know, are you imagining that the final solution of this God you're imagining to the problem of evil is to kill all the evildoers? Because if that's your imagination then it's hard for me to mount an argument against why you shouldn't get with the program. You know, <laughs> jumpstart the apocalypse and kill a few evil people yourself <laughs> to get the program going. I mean, it's an obscene piece of theology that lures people, even though it's rhetorical, symbolical, and everything else, but it's quite clear it lures people into violence by imagining violence. And eventually, after you imagine it long enough, somebody will start it. All right, so do you... Well, let me just ask you the question that you've posed in all of your material here. Which God do you believe in? Do you believe in the peace-loving Jesus stuff, or do you believe in the wrath and the, I'm going to kill my, my son? Wait, God doesn't want me to kill my son anymore, God. You know, annihilate this tribe, annihilate that tribe, God. Yeah, basically, 
I would look at this on two vectors. Leave out God for a second. The message I get from human evolution, from human evolution, say the last 10,000 years, is either we will get to the point of controlling violence, or violence will destroy us as a species. Exactly. That's not pacifism. That's simply looking at human history. No, that's good math. Okay, that's doing the math, all right? Now, I get two visions in the Bible struggling with one another. They're both in there. One is a, a God who demands distributive justice to make the world a peaceful place. I see another God who says, yeah, 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 but if you don't do that, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> now, I, I think my, those two vectors come together for me. It's not that I like, you know, the nice, sweet God. That's not at all. I don't, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing a message that you guys are on your own, and if you don't get control of violence, it's your drug of choice. If you don't get it under control or some kind of a cosmic 12-step program, you eventually are going to destroy yourself and probably your world. So it's a, it's a question of species survival because we're, we're not protected, as I see it, by instinct, the way animals don't do really stupid things most of the time. We can do really stupid things and kind of know they're stupid things because we could destroy the world. So that's the way I, I, I see it. I, if you leave out God out of the whole thing, I get two messages in the Bible. One is the message of radicality, a radical vision of what we need to do to survive as a species. And that means basically put an end to violence because it escalates. And the other is kind of the normalcy of human civilization that says, oh, come on, you know, it's part of the world. You can't get, you can't get around it. Get over it. Don't be so lily-livered liberal or whatever. I, I think of those two visions, the vision that violence is a normal part of civilization is a bankrupt vision because we're seeing what it's doing to us. I got to say, I got, we have to finish this interview. First of all, that, that's the quickest 20 minutes I've ever had on the show. I just wish you'd live closer. I think you'd be a fun guy to hang out with, except for the fact that, uh, that you don't drink gin. Now, listen, you, you have caused some stir in the world of what we call Christendom. But I would rather have someone who causes a stir than that someone who puts us to sleep, by golly. That's probably right. <laughs> Listen, I've thoroughly enjoyed this time. It's, it's, it's not long enough to, to chat with you, of course. John Dominic Crossan, author of How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, struggling with divine violence from Genesis through Revelation. And what a treat to have you on our St. Patrick's Day special. Next is uh, Sarah Jane Murray. She is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, writer, producer, story designer, professor at uh, Baylor, and then uh, actor Ted McGinley, who uh, you might know from Married with Children. He's sort of Irish, but he's not as Irish as you are, Dominic. What a pleasure to have you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Drew, very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Short break. Oh, is this Liza Liza O or something? Uh, Molly Malone. Yeah. yeah, but yes. Yeah. Liza Liza Yeah, that's it. Liza 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 the Ho. <laughs> Walk in uh, the streets of Dublin <laughs> with a Scottish accent. <laughs> You're weird. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Right, let's go. Hey. Wrong man. <laughs> and they wheel their burrow through the streets, broad and narrow, crying cockles and mussels. Alive, alive, oh, alive, alive, oh, alive, alive, oh, 
Ryan Cockles. And the muscles. Oh, oh,